0: Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both the host of the show as well as the director of the nonprofit CreatingAFamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that a lot of people are interested in, and that is the legal and medical risks in infant adoption. We will be talking with... Amy Wallace Fox. She is an attorney partner at Claiborne Fox Bradley Goldman, which is a North Carolina and Georgia law firm. She practices exclusively in the area of adoption and assisted reproduction law, and she is a fellow in the American Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys. We will also be talking in the second half of the show with Dr. Lisa Kroc. She is both an MD, but she also has her master's in public health. She is the Director of Developmental Medicine Center and Associate Chief of the Division of Developmental Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, both of you, to Creating a Family. I am looking forward to talking with you. We're going to start with the legal risk factors in infant adoption. So, Amy, that will be you uh, that we will be discussing this with uh, to begin with, and then we'll move to the medical risk factors. So how can a, I mean, just kind of from the basics, from what people are wondering and, and looking for, how can adoptive, hopeful adoptive parents find a baby to adopt in the U.S.? That seems to be the question that that everyone, when they're first beginning in the world of adoptions, wonders.
1: Sure. Well, there are several different avenues for that. Of course, there is agency adoption, where you find, you sign up with an adoption agency, who would then assist with the matching process. There are attorney facilitated, which tend to be what we call independent adoption, meaning not agency adoption. There can also be assistance from adoption consultants, adoption facilitators, adoption advertisers. And then some people are finding their own match by doing their own advertising.
0: And finding a an expectant parent who may be considering adoption that way. The what is the difference? There is a lot of confusion. The difference between adopting through an agency, adopting through an attorney, or a difference between a facilitator and adoption consultant.
1: Well, legally speaking, the biggest difference between agency uh-huh. and non-agency, or often called independent, is when a, an expectant mom delivers the baby. And is consenting to the adoption. In an agency adoption, she is typically relinquishing her rights to the agency. And then at a later point, the agency is completing the legal transfer of the child to the adopting parents. In an independent adoption without that agency component, then in many states, she is allowed to actually consent to the adoption directly to the adopting parents. So, there would be no intermediary in that case holding legal custody. As far as the facilitator and consultant, I do think those terms get used sometimes interchangeably, but my experience is that the consultant tends to offer a wider range of services such as perhaps help with the profile, help with finding a home study agency, kind of assistance throughout the entire process, support in that way. And then with the consultants that I'm aware of, most of them actually receive mostly agency potential opportunities that they then present to their clients. So they at the consultancies are actually working with Various adoption agencies. So, if you are signed up with a consultant, you may hear about a possible adoption opportunity from more than one agency. Facilitator, in in my mind, tends to be more just kind of matching up the birth mom with the family and not really staying in the case or providing other services. It is also worthy to note that in some states, facilitators are not allowed or not allowed to be paid Mm -hmm. so you want to be careful with that and making sure that whatever services you're signing up for is legal for you in your state
0: Mm -hmm. good very good point we often hear that the, the term adoption friendly state and i should add that that's probably not probably it is very adoptive parent-centric, that, that term. But is there a state that is better than others in which to find an expected mom who may be wanting to place her child for adoption?
1: I think it depends on your, on your viewpoint. As you mentioned, a lot of times when people say that they are meaning, you know, friendly to the mm-hmm. prospective adoptive parents, not yes. necessarily the birth parents. So the main thing that I hear with that is just the states where the revocation period is shorter or that there isn't one. So every state has their own set of laws on adoption. So that's another thing you have to be aware of, you know, when you are dealing with multiple states, but in some states such as Florida is one that comes to mind just because the birth mom does have to wait 48 hours before signing the adoption documents following delivery of the baby but at that point once she signs then she does not have the right to change her mind mm-hmm. in many other states there is some period of time for that and those vary from you know as little as you know no time or one day 3 days 4 days all the way up to as much as 45 days that i've heard of there may be some even a bit a bit longer
0: and then it's a revocation period. So uh, there is a period of time that parents, uh, birth parents, or parents at that point, have before they are allowed to consent to sign the papers that relinquish their parental rights. And then there may be, and usually in most states, is some period of time after they sign the, pa- the papers relinquishing their parental rights that they can revoke that consent. Am I correct that they're kind of two time periods? Is that right?
1: That's right. And in some states, they're is there are both. So there may be a waiting period before they can sign and then a revocation period in which they could change their mind. In other states, there may be a waiting period, like i mentioned Florida with the 48 hours and then no revocation. In other states like North Carolina, there is no waiting period technically, but then there is a seven day revocation period. I will say that sometimes too, there are conditions on the revocation period. So it's not always just for any reason, no reason. It is here in North Carolina, the seven days, the the birth mom does not have to prove anything. She merely has to say, I'm changing my mind, sign the form, that says that in the the child would be returned to her during that time. But there are some states, one that I believe is the case is New York, where it is a longer time. I believe it's 45 days. Again, I'm not a New York attorney, but my understanding is that even though it is that long of a time, the birth mom would actually have to prove a best interest standard if she is to actually get the child back. So that would be for many Birth parents, much more challenging. Also, you know, needing to hire legal counsel possibly to even have a chance at that. So it's not always just about the days. It's also about are there conditions required in revoking?
0: All right. Okay. And so a, a fear that many adopted parents have going in is, is it possible for the birth family to get the child back after an adoption is completed?
1: it would be very rare i mean there would be an appeal period and then some states would have time periods after which it's not possible no matter what but typically unless there's some you know proving of fraud duress or something that was done improperly it would not be possible
0: okay and that brings up the issue of the the legal issue with birth fathers. Birth fathers can, and so we have to separate those birth fathers who are identified and those who are unidentified. So what are some of the legal issues with both identified and then birth fathers, unidentified birth fathers?
1: Right. So when you're talking about issues, I think typically then you're, you're thinking about where the birth father's not consenting. So, I mean, there are some cases where he and the birth mom are on the same exact page with the plan and they're both consenting. So that would be the best case scenario for the legal issues with the birth father. There would not be one in that case. Um, Otherwise, the biggest things are, you know, someone who is known and identified and not on board with the adoption plan. I mean that can really be the end of the adoption plan, just mm-hmm. depending on what his role has been. Typically, the more involved that he's been with, uh, you know, communicating with the, the birth mom, assisting her financially. If he's not on board with the adoption plan, it is going to be very difficult or maybe impossible for it to happen.
0: He is a parent; who has the right to parent, and just as much as the, uh, the as the mother has the right to parent. <laughs>
1: Yeah. If he has been acting as a parent, you know, acting as a parent and and going about, you know, showing that he wants to parent again, every state's law is going to be a little bit different. And sometimes there is a bit of a gray area, you know, like, well, you know, he only provided one thing for me or he hasn't been consistent. So, I mean, those types of things are sometimes things that would eventually get to a court, to a judge, if the mother is still trying to push forward with the adoption plan you know, without his consent. So just depending on his, you know, status and, and whether, you know, what sorts of things has he done, there would also be a major difference if they are married versus not married. If they're married, you need his consent or for him to be completely unresponsive. But if they're unmarried, he would not necessarily have the same status.
0: What about for an unidentified birth father, the, the, the expectant mom, either doesn't know who the dad is or doesn't identify him.
1: Right. In that case, again, it's going to vary state by state, but in many states they would end up needing to check to see, first of all, is there a putative father registry? So this is a registry that a man can sign if he thinks he may have fathered a child and he does it with the mother's name. In that case, if he has registered, then he would get notification Of the adoption, even if she hadn't identified him. So that's a way that he can actually protect himself. Otherwise, typically there would be a publication, maybe both. It just depends again on the state law to publish notice to unknown or unidentified birth fathers. And sometimes that does have to contain the birth mother's name or initials or some identifying features to be able to, you know, for some man to who's possibly reading this to actually know who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So that would be the things that we would have to do with unidentified. As far as other issues, I think, of course, medically, you know, if you don't have any information about him, that could be problematic down the road or just the lack of information
0: so it's possible to adopt with the unidentified if a birth father has not been identified
1: it is however it does sometimes depend on what the situation is in some states for example North Carolina does not allow her to just decline to name him that's different from not knowing who he is Mm -hmm. If you don't know, you don't know. And that's fine here. You know, we take we take care of it with the publication. But some states actually do allow her to say, I know who it is and I don't want to say. But North Carolina is not one of those states. There are states that say she has a privacy interest in being able to not name mm-hmm. even when the person is known.
0: It That that just differs by state law. Exactly. Right. Have you enjoyed what you've heard so far today? We are so excited to offer you even more expert-based content such as this, thanks to a donation from the Jockey Being Family Foundation that allows us to bring you 12 free online courses. And this is these courses are on our online parent training center, and you can access them by this link: bitly slash jbf support. And that's bit.ly slash jbf support. And some of the topics, there's 12 of them there. Uh, you get a certificate of completion when you complete the course. An example of one of the courses is parenting a child with prenatal exposure, directly relevant to what we talked about today. So check it out at bit.ly slash jbf support. All right. How does the Indian Child Welfare Act? impact legal risk and adoption
1: so the Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal law that is supposed to be protecting children of Native American ancestry who actually would be raised in a, in a Native American family but for you know the adoption it was primarily put into place for the involuntary removal so meaning the state welfare, Office, DSS, DFACS, whatever your state calls it, taking children away. However, it, it does still include voluntary placements. So, the, the biggest thing about that is to make sure that those questions have been asked of the birth parents as far as are they registered in a federally recognized tribe or are they eligible to be uh, registered. And then also a few states have what they call mini ICWA, we call it ICWA Indian Child Welfare Act. Some states actually have an additional law at the state level that makes it even more you know, difficult or challenging or maybe even not possible to adopt a child who does fall into that category. So you just want to make sure there's no surprise there with finding out later once things have have moved along. And in some cases, it is still possible to adopt the child, of course, with the mother, you know, voluntarily wanting to do it. But there are some specific um, and extra steps that have to be taken with the mother going to court and sometimes notifying tribes. It really depends on the situation and, you know, and what's going on. So you, you have to be careful about that with Indian Child Welfare Act.
0: And it's both that she is either registered or eligible to be registered with with the tribe. Is that correct?
1: I believe so. Yes. I mean, because she could then register even sort of while things are going on if she's Mm -hmm. if she's eligible. So.
0: Okay. so something to be aware of at the beginning and knowing that it's a. It can be a very big legal risk factor if the mom or the what about the father? If the father is a member of a tribe?
1: It would depend on if they're married or what his status is. There, were, there have been some cases about birth fathers where the Native American status was not enough to actually, you know, remove the child from the voluntary placement if he is not considered a, a legal parent. But the actual just wanted to pull it up. The the definition for the Indian child is member of the Indian tribe or eligible for membership, and the biological child of a member. So the um, parent would actually have to be a member. But it's just that you know if they're eligible, I think you know it could be that that's something they you know try to do <laughs> quickly if they're trying to maybe you know invalidate the adoption or something like that. So okay, you would want to get an attorney very knowledgeable about that. And there are a couple specific ones nationally that are that are experts for sure.
0: One of the the things that a lot of people who are beginning to consider adoption don't realize is that an expected mom cannot consent to adoption until after birth. I think that's right for every state that the mom has to consent after the birth. And even though there has been an adoption, what we call an adoption match, meaning that an agency or an attorney has connected an expectant mom and with an adoptive family, they have talked, they've shared pictures, they've met, they've done whatever, but the mom still has the right to change her mind. And that's hard for parents sometimes, prospective adoptive parents, because they have in their mind, that this has become their child, when in fact, it really isn't. It is still the the mom's child until she consents to the adoption and and signs a paper terminating her parental rights. So what are some of the red flags that you've seen with expectant moms that they may not go through the adoption after birth?
1: One of the biggest ones that I've seen is just her support, especially from her own family. So If she's saying that she's going to go through with it and her own family, especially her mother, is not supportive of it, that is a huge red flag just because, you know, anyone can think about your own parents if they're not approving of what you're doing, especially if she's relying on them for support financially or in other ways same, you know, non-supportive birth father, you know, especially if they are still in a relationship. Again, we talked about that a little bit with the legal risk, definitely a red flag. If there's a domestic violence type of situation with them, and even if she has tried to leave him or did leave, it can be a red flag just because, you know, those dynamics can sometimes lead to her caving in or, you know, allowing his will to prevail in a certain sense. So that is another thing. Difficulty in communication with her kind of being unwilling to provide medical records is another one. Of course, kind of overreaching on needing financial help or just requesting kind of unnecessary expenses. So that's something that we didn't really talk about yet, but actually I had thought about with your question earlier about adoption friendly state kind of coming from a different angle other than just the revocation time. You know, there are states that do and don't allow living expenses to be paid. So I guess sort of either way could be considered friendly. Usually it's considered more friendly if it is allowed for parents to pay expenses, but you still have to be careful about that, that it's not being abused. Which could be considered obviously a red flag if she's, you know, trying to get more than she actually needs, or perhaps even, of course, fraudulently taking money from more than one family would be a big red flag.
0: As to living expenses, uh, that uh, just to fill in, depending on the state law, prospective adoptive parents can pay recognized, approved living experience expenses. Of the expectant mom, depending on the state law, some allow, some don't and have a specification of what is included or not. But I think what you're saying is that a expectant mom who is pushing that limit and seems to be asking repeatedly for additional monies might be a red flag that she is not she's going to make the decision to parent.
1: Right, right. Either make the decision to parent or, you know, it's it's not common, but in rare cases, you know, taking money from more than one source, which, you know, would lead her to either parent or have to choose someone to place the baby with and could definitely get her and everyone involved into a bad place with that. So Absolutely. definitely something to look out for.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Amy Wallace-Fox, for talking with us about the legal risks in infant adoption. Hey, everyone. I have a favor to ask. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Word of mouth is probably the best way to help us get content like this into the hands of your friends it also helps us obviously most people find out about podcasts through others so please be that other please let your friends and families know about the creatingafamily.org podcast now we want to turn to dr proc Again, she is an MD as well as a Master's of Public Health, and she is the Director of the Developmental Medicine Center as well as the Associate Chief of the Division of Developmental Medicine at Boston's Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Proc. I want to now turn to the medical risks in infant adoption. And I think the one that is certainly coming, is on the top of most people's mind, most adoptive parents' minds at the beginning, is the risk of prenatal exposure uh, to alcohol as well as drugs. So what are the most dangerous drugs or teratogenic drugs, those, those that have the greatest impact on the fetus and, and, and then the subsequent long-term impact on the child? And what are some of the more dangerous substances or drugs?
2: Thank you, Don. I'm glad you're starting off with an easily answered question here. That's sarcasm.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I roll. Insert
2: eye roll. <laughs> many, many people and studies have tried to answer this question over the past decades. And I think for example, with prospective parents, it's always hard to hear about a child that you may have joining your family being exposed to anything in utero. So I I try to think about them as big red flags, things that we may not know, and things that I would worry less about. Of course, the environment a child lives in, other factors that might lead to later developmental issues are something to consider as well. And I think we'll talk more about that. But with respect to the substance that probably has the most concerns for children long-term is really alcohol. And we have very good evidence of significant effects long-term, cognitively, developmental abilities, ability to learn, mental health concerns, as well as you mentioned on teratogenic, so causing birth defects or other concerns. I would put high level of alcohol use in the highest risk category. With all substances that we're going to talk about today, there's a gray zone. So How much is safe? You know, we don't always know. What are the effects? Well, it really depends. What's the dose? How often is it being used? And then there are things that we don't know. How resilient is the child? There are genetic factors that we can't test for that may predict long-term resilience or vulnerability for children. So I put alcohol in that biggest area of concern.
0: Just a second. Before we move on, let me ask one question with alcohol. Does it matter when in the pregnancy? I think that sometimes we hear, well, the expectant mom did drink heavily in the first month. I mean, the first three months, the first trimester, or maybe she didn't then, and then she was in jail or something and whatever. And then she did drink. So does the timing in the pregnancy matter?
2: Good question. I think Each substance is a little bit different, but for alcohol specifically, well, for all substances, the less exposure in any period of time during pregnancy when someone is not using is very helpful. So I'll put that out there. So although I don't like incarceration for women who are pregnant, it can be relatively protective for the fetus. So not using a substance, being in treatment, always better than not. With alcohol, we generally see more likely Structural brain problems or changes in facial features if children are exposed to alcohol earlier in the pregnancy. Whereas later in pregnancy, it can affect more executive functioning and developmental abilities. Now, from an experimental perspective or working with animals, we can parse out first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Most individuals don't use only in the first trimester or Mm -hmm. don't use for the first two and then use in the third trimester. So I I would look at the less exposure, the better. Yes, there is a differential impact for some substances, alcohol particularly. And I think we'll talk maybe more about alcohol later in terms of what the facial features and and specific outcomes
0: are. Yeah, we will. Well, we'll go ahead and talk about it now. But in summary the less the better obviously and and i think the reality of from what you're saying is that generally if somebody is abusing alcohol it's likely that it's not going to be just in one month in the pregnancy if i'm hearing you correctly so
2: yes, i think that's correct i think for you know most people in the world are aware that use of alcohol during pregnancy is not ideal it's not recommended so i view a birth mother who's using alcohol is likely to have an alcohol use disorder and probably unlikely to stop. So unless treatments involved in the treatment program are incarcerated, I would presume it will continue. And I don't think people will start using in the third trimester if they have not used previously. So it's an artificial right. distinction is what I'm saying.
0: And so the impacts are going to be the facial dysmorphology, the facial uh, features might not be present because they're only going to happen if the fetus was exposed during a very short time in the pregnancy, but the brain damage can still result if I'm hearing you correctly, regardless and and, and so the child can be impacted regardless of whether or not they have the the standard facial features from a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder yes, okay
2: that that is correct. We used to talk about classic fetal alcohol syndrome, which is identified by known alcohol use growth challenges, specific facial features, and long-term neurodevelopmental issues, but that's really been expanded to be fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And as you said, there are some individuals who may have facial features, but minimal neurologic outcomes. There are people who may have typical facial features that don't look like a classic child exposed to alcohol, but Mm -hmm. do have significant neurodevelopmental outcome challenges. And it's not easy to predict before birth or even before adolescence when children have a chance to demonstrate their skill.
0: All right. So now let's move on to opiates or opioids, either prescription or non-prescription. What are the long-term and short-term impacts for uh, children who've been exposed prenatally to opioids?
2: Yes. So I'm going to lump these all together as opiates. So both prescription opiates, OxyContin, the things that are some of the challenges with our opioid epidemic in the United States at the moment, Mm -hmm. but heroin or methadone, which is used to treat people to help address their substance use concerns. And is sometimes even used in infants to address their withdrawal all have the same mechanism between the various opiates, the dose that you're taking and the length of time that it works in your body do have different outcomes in terms of the likelihood of a child having withdrawal for a substance. So in other words, fentanyl, which is a relatively commonly used opiate at the current time, is actually something that has a very quick onset of action, a real quick high for people. And so someone during pregnancy may use fentanyl and have a really significant high, but it also comes down really quickly. If a mother's primarily been using fentanyl during pregnancy, after birth, a child is less likely to have an extended withdrawal period in the newborn period if they're using fentanyl. On the other hand, if methadone is what's being used, it has a much longer half-life. So it is more likely that there will be withdrawal in the newborn period. So any of the opiates may lead to withdrawal in a newborn period. And, and what that looks like is something that's described clinically. We see evidence of jitteriness, challenges eating, sleeping, having bowel movements, may not be able to sleep. And that is generally what leads us to begin treatment for withdrawal in the newborn period. With respect to long-term outcomes, although opiates are never recommended for use unless really medically indicated, we don't see a big spectrum of long-term outcomes from opiate exposures in children who are prenatally exposed. The studies that have been able to be done looking at this question are often confounded by continued use with adults who are also using opiates, or often people who use opiates or other substances have pre-existing mental health concerns. And so the best studies that have been done looking at long-term effects of opiates show that children may have a slighter greater risk of development or behavioral challenges if they're exposed to opiates in utero. But it's nothing like what I described earlier in terms of alcohol. So the main issue, short-term, for all these opiates are withdrawal in the newborn period, which can be treated and is relatively contained to that period of time. The right. long-term effects are not clear in terms of developmental and behavioral issues, and there's not a specific syndrome that we look for on a physical exam after opiate exposure.
0: And I think one of the other confusing things is that so often children have been dually exposed, meaning that the birth mom is not only using an opioid, but she's also drinking. And so it's hard to... It, so you don't know whether the child has only been exposed to a opioid, because she may well have also been the, the infant may also have been exposed to alcohol. Correct.
2: I think that's a really good point. So poly, we would call it poly substance exposure using more than one thing is really the norm. I think what I'll often say when reviewing records is although the report may be yes. Yes, I've used heroin and fentanyl and methamphetamine and cocaine, but I never touch alcohol. I, I don't know that perhaps if someone is using a fair amount of substances, they're always they're always aware of what they're using and they may not recall. So I think you have to say polysubstance exposure can happen. And I think we look for other signs about, for example, pre-pregnancy use is the best predictor of use during. A pregnancy. So if someone had an alcohol use concern previously, or a child previously diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or fetal alcohol syndrome, I would be quite concerned about the next pregnancy also being at risk for alcohol exposure.
0: So one of the the, the looking at what the mom's lifestyle was prior to getting pregnant is probably the best indicator. Not that not that women don't change when they become pregnant, not that they don't then make better choices. But if somebody is struggling with substance abuse or alcohol abuse prior to pregnancy, your risks are fairly high that that infant will have been exposed prenatally.
2: Yes, that's true. and i and I think I don't want to be all negative here. I do think that there are women who make choices when they find out they're pregnant and really get into treatment. And it is a very strong motivating factor. But yes, the research suggests the best predictor, especially for alcohol, is significant alcohol use pre-pregnancy, predicts use during pregnancy, whether that's reported or not.
0: Now, we've talked about medical uh, substances, uh, drugs used for medical treatment of substance abuse. You mentioned methadone. What about suboxone?
2: So suboxone is a different class of medication, which is also used to treat withdrawal from opiates in general. It also can have a profile of withdrawal in the newborn period. It tends to be less because it's not an active opiate. It it blocks receptors uh, that is a little bit different. And it is not known at this point to have long-term negative side effects, the use of Suboxone per se. It is something we've only been using for a few decades. So we don't have great research on women who are using Suboxone. But if you were asked to make a choice as a pregnant woman, is it better that I'm on a stable treatment with methadone or Suboxone or that you continue using substances as you can get them on the street? I would always choose methadone or Suboxone.
0: But for no other reason, number one, you know it's not laced with something. But also because it's a steady dosage, you know what you're getting.
2: Correct. It's very predictable. And you're right. Uh, We haven't talked about that. But people may purchase something on the street. And there have been a a number of studies that have been done that look at if you think you're purchasing heroin, well, it may be laced with other things, fentanyl or methamphetamine. And even if you're smoking marijuana, it may be laced with other things. So Mm -hmm. um, that's often something that we find on, let's say urine or meconium drug tests, and someone truly thought they were purchasing something, but it was laced with something else.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, let's then talk about, we've talked about the opioids, but we still see I mean, in certain parts of the country, methamphetamines are, are still higher use even in opioids. So what's the impact of methamphetamines on the baby, both the short-term as well as the long-term impacts?
2: Yes. I think we don't have great long-term studies of methamphetamines at the current time. And methamphetamines, I would say, is one substance that is extremely addictive. And my biggest concern with a birth mother who is using methamphetamines is that it may be the primary driver of seeking substances at all costs. And it may Unlike some of the other substances where I'm not so worried about lack of adequate nutrition, the lifestyle that often goes along with seeking meth can also lead to really significant poor nutrition. So in the, new, in the newborn period, babies can show signs of withdrawal from methamphetamine. It may look like um, a combination of exposure to other substances. Some children are extremely reactive, very jittery can't sleep, so looking a little bit more like withdrawal from opiates. Over time, the information that we have so far suggests that methamphetamine use in humans exposed does not necessarily cause cognitive issues, reduced IQ, or developmental problems. It really tends to impact one's ability to regulate everything, their attention, their sleep, their focus, and their memory. So... We're often seeing children who are more likely to meet criteria for ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or have emotional vulnerabilities like depression or anxiety. But there's a lot more we don't know. Animal studies have been very clear that methamphetamine prenatally in animal models can really impact your ability to regulate yourself. And that's what we're actually seeing in in human
0: studies as well. So, self-regulation, would that include executive functioning issues, ability to organize, plan, predict, general, make generalizations, things like that are primarily just regulation issues.,
2: absolutely. So a lot of people have executive functioning vulnerabilities without prenatal substance exposure. But with methamphetamines and cocaine isn't on your list, but i that, I would add that as another one that cocaine exposure often contributes to later challenges with executive functioning. Difficulties organizing yourself to get something done get out of the house in the morning, get your work to school and bring it home and do it and return it.
0: And and that way, and cocaine would also include crack cocaine. Yes. Cocaine, whether inhaled or smoked. Yes. So in either, in either case, uh, it's similar. It sounds like to meth that it, it, it doesn't necessarily reduce IQ per se, but it reduces the, the child and later the adult's because we have to remember the brain dysfunctions caused by prenatal exposure, you don't outgrow. So it, it impacts things such as regulation and executive function and things such as that.
2: Right. I just want to maybe emphasize that I was using cocaine to describe the executive functioning vulnerabilities, which we do see with cocaine exposure. We've got good studies for that. I think methamphetamine is cocaine plus in terms of more mood regulation problems as well, the anxiety, depression, and the challenges with sleeping in addition to the executive functioning challenges.
0: and with meth, as you pointed out, which is such a good point, the lifestyle of someone who is addicted to meth also then it factors into prenatal care, nutrition, risk fa- uh, risky situations that we we'll might put themselves in, which would also have an impact on the on the fetus and and subsequent baby. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. All right. Let me pause for a moment to tell you about one of our partners. Spence Chapin is a licensed, accredited nonprofit organization that has more than 100 years of experience providing adoption services and pre-adoption support. Spence Chapin provides domestic and international home studies both for New York as well as New Jersey families adopting through Spence Chapin's placement programs, as well as for families adopting with other agencies or attorneys. Regardless of the path you ultimately choose to grow your family, Spence Chapin is able to provide pre-adoption support. So I think we've talked about this, but if a mom stops using alcohol or drugs, When she finds out she's pregnant, will the baby be spared the worst of these impacts?
2: I think the earlier she stops, the better, although there's really no safe window and there's no appropriate amount of something to use. But I'd like to think about the fact that even outside of the realm of foster care and adoption, about 50% of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. So there may be a fair number of birth mothers who are using substances, but once you realize you're pregnant, which often happens by the end of the first trimester, if you stop using, that's much more protective for a child. So the question about how early does exposure do something is really challenging because it's not ethical to put women into trials where we expose them to this amount of alcohol for this period of time when we know it causes long-term concerns. But our epidemiologic evidence shows the earlier you stop the less you use even earlier in pregnancy the better
0: and we do have animal studies where we can do those and they support yes. that and they support they that as well that. okay well prenatal exposure to alcohol and drugs is not the only medical risk factor for infant adoption although it does take up a lot of our brain space when we're considering adoption what are some of the other medical risk factors and then we're going to talk about mental health risk factors at the end. But before that, what are some other medical risk factors that adoptive parents should be aware of?
2: Really good question. So during routine prenatal care, pregnant women in the United States are are screened for exposure to a number of infectious diseases, HIV, syphilis, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. So I would say each of them carry different risk factors and are variably treatable. So in other words, syphilis is a bacteria that's been around forever. It's easily treated and it is not something to worry about. If a mother's exposed to syphilis, it's determined during pregnancy. If the baby looks healthy and she's treated appropriately, that's not one to worry about. HIV is increasingly uncommon um, in the United States, although we still see some cases of women with prenatal HIV infection. This is something that we do have protocols to treat the mother during pregnancy and babies can be treated afterwards. Hepatitis B is something that we see much less in the United States now than we did 40 or 50 years ago because everyone born after 1991 has had the recommendation of receiving hepatitis B vaccine and is protected typically against hepatitis B. Even if a mother has hepatitis B, We have protocols that can essentially eliminate the possibility of trans, I'm saying essentially eliminate because there's, because always be one in a bazillion, but it's been a very long time since a birth mother has been hepatitis B positive in the United States. And that baby has developed hepatitis B if treated appropriately and treated appropriately is immunized to the newborn period with both an active vaccine and a passive vaccine. So Immunoglobulin is given to the baby and a vaccine is started in the newborn period. And that really reduce, reduces the likelihood that the child will have hepatitis B. Hepatitis C is prevalent in maybe one in 30 individuals in the United States. It's much higher. it's a much higher prevalence in those who use intravenous drugs or are sexually active with those who do. So, hepatitis C is probably the main infectious concern prospective adoptive parents should be thinking about. If a birth mother is known to have hepatitis C, we don't have routine treatments in pregnancy or in the newborn period to reduce the infection for a child. If a birth mother is hepatitis C positive, a child that she has has less than 10, probably less than 5 percent chance of developing hepatitis C infection. And what that can look like is over, over time, usually over decades, developing inflammation of the liver that can lead to perhaps cirrhosis of the liver, or even liver failure, risk for liver cancer, needing a, a liver transplant. So we really wanna treat this early. Routinely children exposed to hepatitis C are monitored for, for the first at least year of life to see if they become negative or positive, if they are hepatitis C positive, they can be monitored. We do have drug treatments that are available. Most hepatologists who treat liver disease would say pediatric hepatitis C is eminently treatable. It's chronic, it still is an infection, but we can use medications that can reduce the infection infection to not being a significant problem.
0: What about how heritable, is there a genetic connection with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So if, if we know or suspect that one or both of the birth parents or birth grandparents or birth aunts, uncles, whatever, have ADHD, what are the risks that the child that you adopt will also have ADHD?
2: There are many factors besides genetics that can contribute to ADHD. So for example, premature birth, significant malnutrition early in life, both contribute to ADHD. If we look at individuals diagnosed with ADHD, separate from the world of foster care and adoption, about 50% of those children have a parent with ADHD. As you move further away, so a grandparent or an aunt and uncle, it's, it's reduced quite a bit, maybe 10 to 15%. ADHD is pretty common. People would say somewhere between 6 and 8%, perhaps, in the United States. It is partly genetically determined. There are many genes that have been identified as possibly contributing, but there's not one thing we can test for to determine, okay, ADHD will be passed on to a child or not. So it is inheritable. It is something to look for. I would say look early and treat early to maximize long-term outcomes for
0: children. Mm-hmm. And reduce secondary impacts of just not fitting, not being able to do the things that people are expecting you to do, that type of thing. So, recognition early. Recognition.
2: Right. I think the other thing that links to what we discussed earlier is that if you think about the profile of parents who are using substances, ADHD alone increases your risk two or more times of using substances and having challenges with substance use. But if treated appropriately, behaviorally and medically, the risk of substance use can be down to the typical risk of the population. I think that's one of the reasons to reduce the
0: secondary comorbidities. So now let's move to mental illness. Is there a the genetic connection? So in other words, if we know that the birth mom, birth father, or someone in the uh, direct birth family has a diagnosis of, and I'm going to go through some of the different mental illnesses, how heritable, how how likely is it? That what risks does the child of these parents that you would be adopting? What risks does that child have? What about and let's do? um, I'll just kind of go through them and 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 the more uh, common mental illnesses, anxiety or depression. Assuming is there a genetic connection there? So with
2: all the mental illnesses, I think you're going to talk about there is a genetic predisposition, but environmental triggers. And I think if you think about the fact that depression and anxiety are very common in the population, up to perhaps 15% of the population may have either or both. Most families will have someone who's had depression or anxiety. I think multiple family members with significant anxiety concerns, you make it more likely that a child will have anxiety and parental anxiety brings out anxiety in kids. So there's that, there's a genetic contributor, and then there's the environmental exposure. I think about, are there ways that we can treat these long-term? And absolutely, with depression and anxiety, we do have some good treatments. But I think that it's often a combination of challenging environment in someone's life, especially if we're thinking about a birth mother who's making an adoption plan. She has a significant trauma history and has depression I'm not sure that that's a genetically driven depression. It may be more triggered by her environment and similar with anxiety. If you have a lot of trauma, you may have PTSD and a lot of anxiety symptoms, but if you have the same genes and you didn't have the trauma, you may not have that anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm. Such a good point. How do you tease out what is your anxiety is? is, It's actually a, a normal and adaptive behavior response, behavioral response to a life event. And and oftentimes when we're looking at women who are making decisions to place for adoption, there's a lot in their life at that moment that would cause anxiety and depression. So that's such a good point.
2: Right. And I think it's not easy to sort out. That's the take home is that it is not easy to sort out, especially if there's trauma and other stressors.
0: What about some of the more, and I, I hesitate to use the word significant mental health issues, because I I, I am very appreciative that depression and, and anxiety are very significant but what about bipolar or schizophrenia right what about those um, if you have if you're considering adopting a child with a, a direct link birth parent uh, or birth grandparent who has bipolar or schizophrenia what are the chances that your child will have bipolar or schizophrenia
2: yes so for both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder so classic bipolar 1 with manic episodes and significant depression The research suggests if one parent has bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, their child has about 10% chance of having that same disorder. If both parents have schizophrenia, for example, the child's likelihood of having schizophrenia is 40%. So there is a genetic component, but the flip side would be if both parents have schizophrenia, 60% of their children would not have schizophrenia. So it's not a determinant, it's a predictor or a risk factor. And just like I said, with garden variety depression and anxiety, with both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, there are thought to be significant environmental triggers. So we've got the best information with schizophrenia because it's a very clear psychiatric disorder that is more clearly diagnosed than bipolar disorder in my opinion. But we know that for example, stressors, times of famine or war, more children develop schizophrenia. Similarly, if you're in a stressful environment, let's say a challenging home environment, or you're in an institutional setting, your likelihood of schizophrenia with the same genetic risk factors is higher. And the flip side is if you're in a stable environment and don't have other stressors, the likelihood of your genetic predisposition leading to schizophrenia is much lower.
0: It is such a, it is such a web, isn't it? Trying to, it's it is. almost impossible to pull. And maybe that's the, the, the take home message here is that it's, you can't look at, at, at the mental health of the birth parents and predict, although there's certainly a genetic component, there is such a strong environmental component as well. Absolutely. My last question is it doesn't happen as often as people might think but there is concern if a, a birth mother or an expectant mom that you're consider that you're considering a match with has not had any prenatal care usually there's some type of prenatal care but but sometimes there is no prenatal care how much of that should be a concern to adoptive parents
2: I think Prenatal care was really created primarily to protect maternal health. As a pediatrician, I know that good prenatal care can be very helpful in ensuring a baby is healthy and thriving. But a baby who's born healthy without prenatal care is still a healthy baby. And I would not worry about what wasn't done for the months of pregnancy. The important thing if a child doesn't have prenatal care is to make sure all the routine screening done for infectious concerns... Is done in the newborn period, which is the standard of care in every hospital I know of in the United States. So a healthy baby is a healthy baby. I think what you said, Don, about it—it it does happen. People have stomach aches and they go to have a ba- they go to the bathroom and they have a baby. This happens, and people come into the emergency room and a child is born, and that may be a child who's extremely healthy without any prenatal exposure and a parent who's in denial or or for some reason was unable to access prenatal care. So to me, that's it's important to look at why there was no prenatal care and make sure the health of the baby is great. but it is not a big worry from my perspective when you're talking about long-term health of a child.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah it's it's health of the pregnancy, yes, perhaps. but in this case the baby is born. and the we have to look at as to the why. why was there no prenatal care. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lisa Prock, for discussing medical risks in infant adoption. And to everyone who is listening, thank you so much for joining us, and I will see you next week.